Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we are joined again today by the whole gang. Megan Payne is back with us. Megan, good to talk to you. Hey, it's good to be back and see everybody. And Luke Boggs is also with us. Luke, how's it going? Uh, I am I am here in mind, body, and spirit. So it's it's a lovely day while I'm in law school that I, I can be in that state. Well, good. I'm here in mind and spirit, but my body feels terrible. So a two out of three ain't bad. On this week's show, we're going to take a look at a new proposal out of the Trump administration to roll back the Obama-era clean power plan and put in place a much weaker regulatory framework for greenhouse gases. This is this is part of this is an ongoing part of uh, Trump's dismantlement of as many things with Obama's name on them as he can find. Um, and then for our second topic this week, we're going to talk about the plea deal that uh, former Trump personal lawyer Michael Cohen took and the conviction of uh, former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. Um, both of these, uh, both Cohen's plea deal and both Man- and Manafort's conviction came out about the same time last week, last Tuesday. Um, so I know this feels like old news to everybody now, but this is really one of the craziest moments of the Trump administration. And so we thought it was worth uh, talking about. And then for our third topic this week, we're going to recap the state Democratic convention. This convention was last weekend in Atlanta, and it saw um, the entire slate of Democratic candidates uh, make speeches and bring the party together in what at least as far as I've heard is one of the most enthusiastic and energetic gatherings of Democrats in the state in quite a long time. Um, so those will be our topics for the day. Um, but as you're probably aware, last weekend, John McCain passed away at the age of 81. He succumbed to to brain cancer that he announced last year. So we wanted to just open the show with, with a few thoughts on, on Senator McCain, on his career and his legacy. And so um, I will uh, leave that to you guys to start, um, just to say a few words about Senator McCain. I just want to jump in and say that he really was the kind of a marvel of a man. I'm going to sound like the rest of the Dems out there who keep saying that I didn't necessarily agree with his politics, but I really liked him as a human. And that's absolutely true for me. I really had a lot of respect for his integrity and his honesty and everything that he stood for, regardless of the party that he voted for. So the world is a is a uh, is a little less bright without him. Yeah, I have to agree. Uh, there's a move now to uh, rename the Richard B. Russell uh, Senate building after John McCain uh, as a Georgian, <laughs> and Richard B. Russell being a Georgian as well. I actually fully support uh, changing the name uh, due to uh, Richard B. Russell's uh, staunch support for segregation. Uh, I think that kind of outweighs the uh, good things that he did as a senator. Um, I think John McCain would be a far more appropriate person to have uh, one of the primary buildings of the United States government named after. Uh, to to build off of what Megan was saying, though, um, John McCain definitely like made mistakes as a politician and as a human being, and supported you know the Iraq War and support you know got got into trouble in his career as a senator. But what I think that I really appreciate about John McCain is that he had the aspiration of being a statesman and really worked hard to achieve that goal and was aware where he, he was 
failing at doing that and that he wasn't always getting there but he was always trying to get there and i think the fact that he um did that and worked pretty hard to to do that um is really impressive and i will personally always appreciate him for uh being the staunch advocate for campaign finance reform that he was because that's a a really important issue that's not popular among uh, politicians to push while they're in office it's real popular when they're running for office uh, before they get there and so i will always appreciate him for that and for uh just being a model of what a you know uh, attempting statesmen should should be and so he will definitely be missed and uh especially in this time yeah, on uh, Political Rewind on Monday, we were talking about Senator McCain and his legacy. And uh, Bill Nygut, the host, he played an audio of a speech that John McCain made shortly after the South Carolina primary in 2000. Uh, during that primary, it was it was one of the more brutal primaries um, in Republican politics in the state in the state's history. Um, Senator McCain endorsed the idea of the Confederate flag as being a representation of, of people's heritage. And about a month or so after the primary, he went back to South Carolina and said that he was wrong to take that position and apologized for taking that position in what I felt like uh, when I heard the audio earlier this week, I felt like it was this really remarkable act of contrition and of asking for forgiveness that is that is so uncommon among politicians now. Um, so yeah, dis- despite his flaws, he was somebody who aspired to the highest ideals. He um, gave his life in service of this country for decades, prisoner of war. Um, I'm sure you all have seen a lot of you know, retelling of his legacy in in recent days. But but yeah, the, the world is a little less bright without Senator McCain and, and the world stage really will suffer without his voice there, uh, particularly as a counterweight to President Trump, um, given, you know, Trump's view of basically all foreign affairs. Um, so so a somber week in Washington, um, but a lot of a lot of good memories of of Senator McCain to to dwell on in, in terms of thinking about his legacy. So he is somebody who will certainly be missed in our politics. One other uh, thing on McCain's legacy that I think we, we would be remiss not to mention is the Sarah Palin, (laughs) you know, know, (laughs) because, you know, by, by uh, asking her to be his running mate, he, a lot of people have argued that he is responsible for, unleashing donald trump onto all of us and you know there's the question if he did enough to uh try to fight that back and you know it's it's quite often shown the the video of him uh talking to a voter i don't i can't remember where who was uh referring to barack obama as an arab and muslim and he very strongly said that he was not and that he was a good man and it just like the idea of a, a Republican politician doing that now is pretty un- inconceivable. Uh, but despite him having those good instincts in that moment to say the right thing, you know, he did, he did unleash Sarah Palin. So it's, it's, I think it's just a valuable lesson that uh, people in American politics and in history in general are usually complicated figures and it's hard to uh, paint them with what, you know, a single brush. Could, could we have, truly predicted the level of crazy with Sarah Palin like when it was all said and done 
I feel like she just got crazier as it went, but that's just me. Yeah, I thought about that a lot this week, actually, as a, as a part of his legacy. And I think that those forces were ready to come out within the Republican Party, regardless of what had happened in that election. I think the one way in which they might have been beaten back for longer would have been for uh, McCain to pick somebody else for VP and to win that election in 2008. Um, but I think a lot of that was driven as much as it was driven by McCain making Palin a national figure by putting him on the tick by putting her on the ticket. Um, I think it was also driven by the reaction to the first African American president and the development of conservative media during the Obama era. I mean, I think there was a lot of things going on that even absent Palin being on McCain's ticket, I don't think we would have ended up in a much different place than we are now. All right. Well, with that, let's move on to our first topic for the week. Um, So a couple of weeks ago now, the Trump administration released a proposal to roll back the Obama-era clean power plan. This was a plan, uh, basically an EPA regulatory framework that was adopted during the Obama administration that aimed to significantly curb greenhouse gases by regulating primarily power plants and in the emissions that they produced. Obama's clean power plan actually never went into effect. Shortly after it was um, agreed to as an EPA rule, it was challenged in the courts, and it was held up in the courts through the end of the Obama administration. Um, So at this point, the Trump administration has come in. They are uh, trying to find a replacement for the clean power plan because they are legally required to have some regulatory framework about uh, regulating greenhouse gas emissions. And so this is where we have landed with what they are calling the Affordable Clean Energy Plan. It is the Trump administration's proposal. (laughs) That sounds a lot like something else. It does. I I kept typing in affordable uh, as I was researching this and affordable care act kept coming up. Um, So I can't get away from the health care. The the most striking thing about this uh, proposal to to get us started here is that the new rules um, as evaluated by the EPA itself, the new rules would lead to as many as 1400 premature deaths each year by the year 2030 and have uh, lead to up to 15,000 new cases of upper respiratory problems, an increase in bronchitis, and tens of thousands of missed school days uh, by uh, children because this proposal would allow what's called fine particulate matter, but it's basically just pollution into the air, and it would be breathed in by all of us, um, and our, our health would be much worse off as a result. Um, so, so for y'all, what, what is your reaction to the release of this proposal? Do you feel like the Trump administration is making a good faith effort to give us affordable, clean energy? No, (laughs) uh, like, (laughs) uh, why do you frame questions this way, Kyle? (laughs) Because one day we'll like, find a Republican. There's only one answer. There's only <laughs> one answer to this. One day like, we'll find a Republican to say yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're out there, um, but um, yeah. So goes without saying. I don't think he is, uh, or his administration is. That they they've really just not done 
a lot to inspire confidence in in this area of you know energy policy and EPA policy in general. And I think the more interesting conversation here is just like how little they've gotten done here because it just seems like every other day there's a new proposal out keyword proposal out from the Trump administration on energy issues and not at nearly as much movement on it as we've seen with with other issues and I just well can I stop you there real quick because there yeah. are there are three avenues by which the EPA is required to regulate greenhouse gases uh, one of them is through uh, auto emissions, and so they recently put out a proposal that basically relaxes uh, fuel economy standards that's also from the Obama era. And then there's sort of two different pathways for regulating greenhouse gases from power plants. Um, one is sort of you know older school power plants, and the other one um, I think is, a, is just sort of a different classification. And so that's why we've seen sort of multiple proposals, but all of them are pushing in the same direction of less regulation and uh, setting more modest goals for how much you reduce greenhouse gases. Right. And that that's true. And, you know, administrative agencies are uh, very complicated and difficult, and that's why you have to take entire classes on them. And I, and from my, of course, unlimited expertise from my one class in admin law, uh, I know that it's very tricky to uh, change these standards and get get courts to approve them. Uh, so I, I feel like this is going to face uh, a similar threat that many of the other climate cases and policies that the Trump administration has had to put has tried to push forward in that the courts uh, might be very skeptical, especially of their moves to remove uh, research and data from uh, the the policy debate because that court courts really like evidence and if you're going to tell them we don't need evidence anymore, it's not going to uh, fly nearly as well as they think it will. Yeah, well, to build off of what you said, I. Depending on the whole Kavanaugh situation, that could definitely inform the decisions made with this as well. You know, depending on what Kavanaugh supports or if he isn't appointed and then there this goes in front of SCOTUS and there's a deadlock. You know, obviously, this is a ways out. You know, we're not anywhere near this point yet, but it this could get messy. Well, yeah, and from what we know about Kavanaugh – is that he is very skeptical of regulatory frameworks like these, particularly when they appear to go beyond the letter of the law. Um, and so I, I think Kavanaugh is particularly worrisome as it, as it comes to this issue, because this likely is an issue that ends up before the Supreme Court. A lot of this is based on the fact that the Clean Air Act requires the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases and, so instead of the EPA saying, no, we're, we're just not going to do it, which is what they'd probably prefer to say, they're actually required to come up with some framework. And this is their attempt, I think, at doing the bare minimum um, in terms of regulation that they think they can get away with from the courts. And I'm very skeptical that that bare minimum will work for them. So it'll be interesting to, to see if, if it does or not. So one part of this that's interesting is that the clean power plan, the Obama era plan never actually went into effect, but many states have already actually met their goals under the clean power plan. And uh, another group of states are 
close to meeting those goals or would be close to meeting those goals, even if this plan from the Trump administration is put into effect. And so I was sort of left with this interesting question of what actually is the impact of these regulatory schemes? Because we're already close to meeting those goals. The, the reason that we're close to meeting those goals primarily is natural gas prices have been much lower than was anticipated when the Obama rules were developed. Um, and so this may be a, a good time to turn to Georgia um, and put up a question for y'all of what do you think the responsibility of Georgia policymakers, but maybe even Democrats running for office in terms of positions they take, what should their position be as it relates to this this new development on um, carbon regulation? So other states have taken a pretty staunch stance on carbon emissions individually. You know, it's it's down to each state whether they are going to require emissions testing for vehicles over a certain age or just in general. Um, And so I fully support that. And I feel like the state should too. What we're seeing from the evidence in um, the discussions around this is that there's already an appetite for this in a lot of states. As you already mentioned, since natural, natural gas prices are low and there's just a social move toward cleaner energy, a lot of these issues are actually taking care of themselves. But I feel like it's part of the state's responsibility to go ahead and to take care of itself and to keep the states clean and to kind of encourage that to move forward as long as it's fiscally responsible. I understand that there, are, you know, if natural gas prices were to spike, that gets a little bit more concerning. But personally, I like to be able to breathe and I live in Atlanta. So if there weren't emissions regulations, the city already gets smoggy enough sometimes. And we don't really have a smog problem in Atlanta. So, you know, just. Georgia, as an example, with some of the larger cities in it, um, if Georgia, for example, stopped requiring, you know, vehicle emissions testing, things could get pretty bad pretty quickly. Yeah. And the other thing we're seeing is that cities like Atlanta are also trying to meet some green energy goals and um, trying, you know, there, other cities, I'm trying to remember which ones, but have like, ex, you know, explicitly said that they're still like working towards the goals as part of the Paris climate accords as well. And so this is, this is one of those things where the Trump administration is probably frustrated and that they're not going to be able to have as big of an impact as they want, because there are other uh, venues that people can pursue green energy and just cleaner energy and not let uh, fossil fuel companies, uh, you know, have a carte blanche to do whatever they want. And this is just uh, my my routine plug for uh, how important local elections are, because athens Clark County uh, has elected a very uh, progressive new uh, county commission and we have a more progressive mayor and you know we seem well on our way to uh working on some policy changes that would be greener like uh banging plastic bags and you know and there's plenty of other things that can be done at different levels of government and so this is not one of those things where the um trump administration is in complete control of the government. And if we can elect a Democrat governor, perhaps, and some more Democrats in the state legislature, this is something that Georgia could be uh, doing as well. So I do think this is an 
an important omission from Stacey Abrams' green jobs proposal. Um, this is the most the her green jobs proposal is the most detailed uh, proposal we've seen on energy and climate issues from her. And as far as I can tell, she does not lay out in this proposal the goal of achieving or surpassing the clean power plan targets that were set under the Obama administration. Hey guys, just a quick editor's note. After we had this conversation, we did find out that Stacey Abrams does support the state of Georgia meeting their emissions reductions goals under the Obama era clean power plan. Our discussion doesn't reflect that, but we just wanted to catch you up on the latest. You know, given that we have committed ourselves to plant Vogel the uh, development of two new nuclear reactors that will produce nuclear power, and the fact that we only have five coal plants left in the state, I think it would be good to see Abrams and to see Democratic candidates up and down the ballot say that they want to meet those clean power plan goals and exceed them. Because even with this proposal, Georgia would be close. Um, it, It somewhat is dependent on those natural gas prices and um, I guess to some extent, dependent on Georgia seeing through the the project at Plant Vogel, um, but you know, I I thought that this was this was kind of an omission from her. Do do either of y'all do y'all want to see that concrete proposal of meeting the clean power plan goals, or you know, her existing proposal focuses a lot on jobs, and and do you think that that's you know a better focus? So I think that the jobs focus is actually really important for Georgia as a state that labels itself as open for business and those types of things. But I will say that, you know, based on my Googling about this earlier, um, did you know that one of Georgia's coal plants is considered one of the top 25 dirtiest in the nation? And so with that fact and with the fact that just about everything that's in place so far leaves massive loopholes for old coal plants um, are, I I really just think that it needs to include more. It needs to include at least a a step closer to fulfilling some of the green energy um, goals rather than just jobs. But as previously stated, jobs are super important for the state and are probably better to focus on. Yeah, I also agree that her focusing on jobs is probably smart because Unfortunately, Democrats in the past have been really sucky at messaging and allowing the electorate to understand that green jobs are not like a, a sacrifice and like we're not losing jobs because we're ha- we're promoting green energy and that we're actually gaining jobs and it's an investment in a new industry that will lead to more and more jobs, not less jobs. And so that's something that I'm happy to see her focus her messaging on. The, the other thing I just mentioned is that I'm not surprised that we don't have more concrete details just because uh, one of the things that you brought up a couple times, Kyle, of like plant vocal is just a very tricky issue because while it is a uh, you know source of clean energy, it's also a project that's going uh, way over budget and uh, way past its uh, a timeline for getting done. So it, it's one of those things where... Uh, it's it's difficult to communicate around these issues in Georgia right now due to a lot of the frustrations that we're seeing around 
around Plant Vogel. Just one more editor's note. We're going to talk about Plant Vogel here in a second, but I just wanted to add one more note about Stacey Abrams and her goal for the state to meet its clean power plan goals. Um, so states and large cities have played a key role in continuing to improve U.S. efforts on emissions and climate change and amidst the Trump administration and their efforts, for instance, to pull the United States out of the Paris Accord. Um, many of the states in our region are actually close to meeting their goals. Uh, we're close to meeting our goals, along with South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Mississippi, Kentucky, and Arkansas. And Florida is expected to surpass their goal. Um, so I think it's important just for the purposes of momentum and the purposes of showing that you can do, you can meet these emissions reduction goals in economically sustainable ways. Um, but I think it's important for government regulators to be kind of the backstop to push utilities to push our energy industries to meet those goals, um, and to make those investments for the long term. Um, so with Stacey Abrams potentially being the next governor from Georgia, and Andrew Gillum potentially being the next governor from Florida, um, we could see good climate policy coming out of the southeast, coming out of the two largest states in our region here soon. Should we recap a little bit about Plant Vogel? Um, yeah. Just, not, I'm not sure that I, I know it's something that I wasn't terribly familiar with. I'm yeah, not so, as familiar as I need to be, but... Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. <laughs> I, I'm probably not either. All right, so yeah, Plant Vogel is this nuclear power plant. It's down in southeast Georgia near Waynesboro. They have had um, two nuclear power producing units since the late 1980s, and currently they are in the process of constructing two more nuclear power producing units. Um, this is a project that you've probably seen in the headlines primarily because the cost estimates for this project have been overrun multiple times. Um, the most recent cost overrun was about a billion and a half dollars over what they thought that it was going to be. And it's created some uncertainty about the future of the project as one of the uh, electric utilities involved is trying to convince their members to basically back out of the project. Um, but Georgia Power is covering these cost overruns, at least at this point. So this is something that's that may come up in the Public Service Commissioner races um, this fall, although it, it can be a tough issue for Democrats, because while this is an expensive project tied to Georgia Power, a utility that I don't know is beloved, um, it is also... Let me assure you, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not, not a huge fan. Um, it is also probably the largest unionized work site in the state because the all of the construction workers uh, helping to build these these nuclear units are are unionized workers. Um, so so you'll probably hear about that in the fall about Plant Vogel. Plant Vogel is at the heart of both Democrat PSE candidates campaigns. They. And even the, their primary opponents talked about it pretty much all the time. It's it's a real point of frustration and a sign of it, it's it's one of the most effective messages that I feel like I've heard because it's a clear uh, place where the incumbents that they are running against have just been derelict in their duty. Because while you can think that Plant Vogel is an important project and that Georgia really should be excited to have it and i'm i'm kind of agnostic on that question 
it's quite clear that it's gone way over budget and taking way longer than they said it was going to. And the fact that the Public Service Commission hasn't really served the public in trying to like keep this in check and hold them accountable. And they're just basically rubber stamping everything that uh, the folks building Plant Vogel have asked them to is, is, is pretty frustrating. And so I, I'm hoping that um, we can get some clarity uh, in this race on that and hopefully uh, get some Democrats elected uh, with, with it and see some change on the commission. I think the other thing that gets kind of dicey toward what you were talking about is that for the Democratic candidates, it becomes um, a really difficult subject to talk about because while it is super problematic, as already alluded to, it's a massive union employment site. And so for Democrats that are wanting to support business and expand jobs and to push, you know, unions in Georgia, um, you know, it becomes a thing that is very difficult to talk about without shooting yourself in the foot. Georgia Power is saying that part of the reason for the cost overrun is expenses on labor. So expenses on these uh, unionized, on this unionized labor force. What? what A business is blaming labor for being the reason stuff has gone over? No, that never happens. Well, I guess, so what would you, Luke, what would you like to see from these like like beyond just sort of the vague holding accountable, what would you like to see them actually do? Is this like a matter I mean, of transparency do you, do you know, for the public? We don't have a we don't have an answer on why it's taking so long. We don't have any there's no accountability at all. The commission has the ability to hold them accountable. Uh, there's many different avenues that they could take. Uh they could ask tougher questions. They could not just rubber stamp everything that uh, the you know folks over there want them to and they could try to actually you know give them some firm deadlines that they have to meet or there's consequences the company that is like building plant vogel make a deal with georgia taxpayers to like build this plant and they are failing to achieve that goal and the consequence of that so far has been that Georgia taxpayers have to foot the bill because they suck at building this plant. That is not really a a position that I'm encouraged that my public service commission has taken. I would much rather them put the liability of them continuing to suck at building Plant Vogel on the company rather than the Georgia taxpayers because now our power bills are our utility bills are continuing to go up because of a Plant Vogel fee that. I don't think is going to go down anytime soon and will probably go up because of the fact they're just letting them do whatever the hell they want. And I'm just wanting to see something from the Public Service Commission on it because right now they're basically quiet. And if I was the board or commission responsible for watching a giant construction project like this and was basically silent when it kept going over budget significantly, I I don't think that's a very convincing message that I'm doing my job. Well, and here's part of the silence, right? Like nuclear power is, you know, albeit dangerous, clean and relatively cheap compared to the other power sources. And so I bet you they're dealing with a very similar thing that the Democratic candidates are dealing with, whereas depending on how they talk about it, they just shoot themselves in the foot. And so in this case, it's not appropriate. They should 
step up and do their job and actually say something um, and, and work to fix this problem. Because, yes, as you mentioned, as those of us who are paying Georgia Power and all kinds of things, um, we are just having to foot the bill. And that's not okay. But, um, yeah, the silence is, is pretty is pretty tough to, to swallow. Um, so to to close on on one other environmental topic uh, relevant here in the state of Georgia, um, on your ballot this November, you're going to see the Georgia Outdoor Stewardship Act as a constitutional amendment to your ballot. Um, this is an amendment that dedicates part of the sales tax on outdoor sporting goods to um, to a state fund that uh, aims to uh, protect lands key to clean drinking water, acquire and improve parks and trails, and maintain and improve access to wildlife management areas. Um, this would be the first constitutionally dedicated fund for conservation and, and for the environment in the state's history. Um, this was a constitutional amendment that got overwhelming support in the legislature uh, from both sides of the aisle during um, this last legislative session. And so that'll be there on your ballot if you would like to have part of the sales tax from, you know, when you go to the sporting goods store, buy a tin or whatever, the the sales tax that you pay on that would go into a fund um, to help uh, fund conservation projects around the state. Um, so, so that is something to to keep an eye on on your ballot this fall. Georgia actually has a weird history of of having some Republicans be actually truly green, and so it's nice to see that there's there's some effort to uh, actually take positive steps on the environment in Georgia. Well, and this also led to a nice little bipartisan moment in the Senate when this bill was being considered. Uh, the former Lieutenant Governor Pierre Howard um, was invited by Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle to preside over the Senate when this bill was being debated and passed. Um, this was an issue that was important to Lieutenant Governor Howard when, when he was still um, in his career serving as a public official. So so a, a nice little friendly bipartisan issue for everybody to rally around in the state. That's sweet. I like that. Um, so on that note, let's move to something decidedly less sweet. Uh, and that is the recent legal liabilities uh, being brought forward for President Trump. Um, so last Tuesday, within the period of, I think, about five or 10 minutes, uh, the president's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, accepted a plea deal from prosecutors where he uh, pleaded guilty to uh, several uh, financial crimes, including a campaign finance violation, where he said that at the instruction of uh, now President Donald Trump, he made uh, two different payments, one one to uh, Stormy Daniels and another to and a second payment to Karen McDougal. Um, these were both payments that were intended to hide affairs that President Trump had with both of these women um, to keep their stories from coming out in advance of the 2016 election. Cohen in that plea deal made very clear that he violated this campaign finance rule at the direction of President Trump. Um, the other legal liability for the president, not directly, but sort of indirectly, at least in the court of public opinion, came with the conviction of his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, to several financial crimes 
uh, related to his business dealings around the world. This was not something that implicated him directly, but it raises a lot of questions about Paul Manafort's loyalties when he was serving as the Trump campaign's chairman. Um, Some people might remember that while he was serving as the campaign chairman, he contributed to getting a a very watered down version of a Russia resolution onto the Republican platform at the 2016 uh, Republican National Convention. Um, So let's uh, talk about both of these developments. Um, Megan, what do you think these developments mean politically for President Trump? Does this bring the specter of impeachment uh, closer to him? I wish, but I hate to say no. Um, I think that what it'll do is it will make it'll it'll maybe give a little bit of credence to some of the things that people have been saying um, about the fact that he does deserve to be impeached and that sort of thing. But ultimately, and he's been saying this himself, these things don't have to do with him. And while, yes, they in fact do, they don't really have to do it, – it's harder to tie these things directly to him and his actions. You know, he's um, – the, the payoff is pretty suspicious and um, it all just looks really bad, but I'm not sure that anything – from this is really going to be able to push the impeachment issue further. The man's like Teflon. You can't get anything to stick to him, which is really frustrating. So let's look at the Manafort one first. That one really doesn't implicate Trump directly. Uh, It is very important, though, to the Mueller investigation, since that is the case that they were handling. It's If you looked at the polls, like the Mueller investigation was getting a little less popular and definitely along partisan lines. But now... You have a conviction, including a con- this conviction with a like hardcore Trump supporter who like literally had like a MAGA hat in her car every day. Even she was like, "I really didn't want Manafort to be guilty, but he was." And so, you, like, there's legitimacy to the Mueller investigation now because of that. That they pretty they really needed just because there's there's a very very dedicated effort from. Uh, the propaganda wing of the White House at Fox News to make Mueller just completely discredit. And so having that prosecution actually get result in convictions is really important, but it doesn't really directly affect Trump because it's all, it's stuff that was a, before and like just around the time where he was working as uh, Trump's campaign manager for free, which is a little weird, but we'll come back to that. But it wasn't actually stuff that he was doing on the Trump campaign that he was prosecuted for. However, there's a lot of correlation between the people that Manafort was working with and the people that they hanged out with and the people that Trump, if he was colluding with Russia, probably was hanging out with. And so I feel like there's a lot more of the Manafort story than we've heard. And there's a reason why that Robert Mueller and his team kept this case and they didn't keep the Cohen case. And I'm, I believe there's something about Manafort and his connections that relates to the, the larger question in which uh, Mueller has been investigating. And we just don't know what it is yet because the Mueller team is really good at uh, keeping their mouth shut and doing investigations like professionals and not leaking to the press all the time. Now to Michael Cohen, Will this result in the Republican Party 
in control of the House filing articles of impeachment? Hell no. Like, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, Should Democrats start talking about it more? No. What we should be talking about and what's important to talk about is corruption in general and how Donald Trump doesn't think the law applies to him and the people around him don't think that. Uh, We also saw recently uh, Donald Trump's first and second endorsers in Congress get uh, indicted for a lot of, um, one was indicted for insider trading, the other was for campaign finance violations. Several of his cabinet members have had to resign due to uh, corruption issues. And so it's just, it's clear to me, and it should be clear to everyone else, there's some severe problems when it comes to corruption in this administration. And having this just adds to that. Now, what the difference is, with Cohen's like plea deal, the documents we got weren't you know that um, in depth. But Donald Trump is all bugging unnamed, I mean unnamed co-conspirator in this thing because uh, he, you know, Michael Cohen made quite clear that on the order of a candidate for president, which is obviously Donald Trump, he paid off these women, and that is quite clearly a campaign finance violation because, as he said in the plea deal, they paid them off for the benefit of the campaign, you have to report that. So, is that going to result in him being impeached tomorrow? No, but is it going to be part of an eventual impeachment if it happens? Yes, and at a time where it's sorely needed, it's uh, providing legitimacy to the Mueller investigation that there is actual concrete things that Donald Trump has done wrong. That makes sense, and I'm with you there. I guess I'm just the cynic in the the room. I'm... I'm also a little bit concerned about what happens if Trump is impeached because I'm kind of terrified of Mike Pence. So just to throw that out there. Yeah, I don't really know that President Pence is something that we would be much better off with. Even if uh, our blood pressure could go down a little bit, I think he would be much more effective in a very bad way that we would be better off without. Um, But Luke, so do you... I, I saw some pushback on the idea of... Democrats now amping up their discussions about impeachment, saying that Democrats should be careful not to say that anything that we have solid evidence on, which for now seems to be this uh, probable campaign finance violation, um, that Democrats should be careful not to say that those are not impeachable offenses or that those specific offenses are not part of the case for impeachment because it'll be hard to put that back in the box when, when, and if that becomes sort of central to the case for impeachment. So if you're a candidate on the trail right now, how should candidates be answering that impeachment question? Well, I think the, the way that you phrase that question is really great. Uh, and I'm not just saying that blow smoke up your ass, but it's just, you, you, you say, how should you answer that question? And that points out like the most important thing when it comes to the impeachment issue is that you don't bring it up. (laughs) It's not something that you need to be campaigning on. It's not something that you need to be focused on. How you respond to it, I would first say exactly what I have already said, which is focus on the corruption element. Focus on the fact that Donald Trump has clearly done things that like even like let's go to like Rudy Giuliani land for a brief moment. Even if it's not illegal, 
that he did this, which I firmly think it is. Is this the ideal? Is this what you want from your president to be concealing affairs that he's had? Because it's obvious to anyone with half a brain that Donald Trump paid off these women because he thought it would hurt him in the election if people knew about it. Like, that is why he did it. And so we don't want to encourage that behavior at all. And so that's the corruption issue, and that's where I think the focus should be, and I think that's where your more powerful points are. But if someone just will not let you leave the elevator you're in or wherever, or the you know TV interview you're on, and they're just like, what are you going to do about impeachment? You have a great answer for that, which is Robert Mueller is still uh, conducting his investigation, and I think we should wait till the end of it before we move on it. And if I'm elected, we will get to the bottom of these uh, corruption issues and investigate them further. And, and on that front, I don't think anyone would say that that's a cop-out. It is a let's get all of the information before we make a decision. I don't know. I don't like talking about impeachment all that much because I don't think... I don't think actually talking about impeachment matters all that much. Um, it it could raise an interesting question, I guess, of whether or not you, you know, should House Democrats consider impeaching Trump, could consider filing impeachment. What is it? Filing impeachment articles of impeachment articles of impeachment, which they've already done. A, if you have a Republican Senate, I've been like, mulling on that question a little bit because I don't know if we're ever going to get to a point where there would be Republican buy-in on impeachment. You know, I mean, they may find that Trump and Putin were sitting at a computer together changing vote totals and Republicans may not back down. And so I don't know, you know, how fruitful it, how fruitful the remedy of impeachment would be at all when it's only two more years to another election and, you know, Republicans may, well, and I don't, I don't want Pence to be president. So. Okay. I, I get, I get what you're getting at. Okay. So Kyle and everyone out there listening, this is not my original thought. This is, this is the true, the truth of this matter. Impeachment is not a legal remedy. It is a political remedy. There is Donald Trump has done illegal things, but unfortunately due to, DOJ policy right now it is unlikely that they will indict the president because it's a long-standing DOJ policy that they just don't indict sitting presidents there's lots of good reasons why you don't want that and I generally approve of that policy we are also sitting here in August of uh, 2018 if the Democrats take the House and if they take the Senate they still need 67 votes in the Senate for them to actually successfully impeach Donald Trump. Do y'all know how many presidents have been successfully impeached? Zero. Exactly zero. zero. It's never been done. And so if you're looking for a political remedy to Donald Trump, run a really good candidate in 2020 because that is probably the way that you're going to get rid of Donald Trump. The other reason that is is because the nixon scenario tells you how this will probably play play out now donald trump's weird and we'll get into that in a minute but like basically if you get to the point where the president has done something that's so insanely bad that you could actually get enough republicans in the senate to vote to impeach him 
they will probably just walk over to the White House and say, you should probably step down because otherwise we're going to impeach you and it's going to be really embarrassing. You should probably just leave. And at that point, Donald Trump, most people would probably leave. There's a chance that Donald Trump is so stubborn that he wouldn't, but I honestly think he even would. I was was about to say, let's not count on Donald Trump behaving like most people would in that scenario. But yes, if it is about his reputation and he actually realizes that it's a real thing that is going to happen to him, maybe he will leave. Because I think the I think if you laid out the argument the way that I just did, which is Donald Trump, do you want to be the only president in United States history to be successfully impeached? Because that's what's about to happen to you. If you resign, at least you get to be the second person that's ever resigned. I mean, you're nothing, not the only one. nothing's his fault. So he may may wear it like a, a badge of of honor. I'm the only president that they decided to come after. They ganged up on me. I don't know. I can just see that happening, too. The other thing he may want to do is if it comes to that point, he may want to try to negotiate some sort of deal to get out of being prosecuted for his crimes because he's really good at uh, announcing that he has committed them on national television. (laughs) Right. So, like, I I think maybe one of the worst things to ever happen to Donald Trump might have been getting elected president. Oh, I know questions asked because uh, besides these legal problems that we've already mentioned, the CFO of the Trump organization has just gotten immunity and we're not really sure why. Uh, and, uh, you know, his, his, as we've mentioned, Michael Cohen, his fixers obviously flipped on him. And I it would be very surprised if uh, the porn star stuff is the only thing Michael Cohen is aware of that Donald Trump has done. And it's quite clear that the Trump uh, foundation was up to shaggy stuff and not really following the rules of anything. And so, I mean, just like to avoid like making this episode 18 hours long, it's quite clear that Donald Trump was not playing by the rules. And there's a lot of things he's done that he shouldn't have done. And I would be very shocked if like, you know, four years from now we're sitting here and the Trump organization has survived because and that like his kids aren't either just in jail or just unable to run that business anymore because it's quite clear that they just weren't doing what they were supposed to do and then even if they get away from all these legal problems it's going to be very expensive for them to do that and their businesses are taking a hit in public opinion uh, not just in the united states but internationally and so the trump brand is just completely demolished and so i think it's safe to say that the you know donald trump's (laughs) worst uh you know batch of luck was being elected president because it's it's just it's not working out well for him it's not working out well for us either. Um, let's close on this point. All of this gets at sort of a political question of the legitimacy of President Trump and how illegitimate his election may be. You know, Trump can do a lot of things as president, and many of those things can be uh you can come back after the fact and overturn them and reverse them. It's difficult, but it's possible. But one thing that really can't easily be overturned is his nomination to the Supreme Court of Brett Kavanaugh. So do, do all of these developments change either of your opinions of whether or not Trump is legitimate enough to be able to make this Supreme Court selection? And do you have any ideas about how Democrats should attack that question as this nomination moves forward? To answer your first point, I mean, legitimate enough gets a little bit dicey, right? So if I believe in the process, which I believe we've 
you know, we've talked about with Tory on previous episodes. Um, he is the president and it is time to appoint a new Supreme Court justice. So from that perspective, yes, it is his job. He needs to to do it, whether I agree with his pick or not. But granted, I don't agree with his pick. And so I just have very torn feelings about the whole thing because if I were a proponent of just gumming up the process and having that be the reason why Kavanaugh doesn't get in, then that just sets a terrible precedent, which granted, I understand that precedent has been previously set with what happened with Obama, but I don't think that that precedent should stand. And so I I do think that he's, you know, he's, it is within his job description to appoint a Supreme Court justice and he's going to appoint, appoint Kavanaugh. Um, and so that just, that is what it is. Now, as far as Democrats fighting it, um, you know, I, I like probably a ton of the rest of the nation have been keeping up with the different points that they're bringing up about Kavanaugh and writing to my elected officials, especially leveraging ResistBot, um, since it, you know, gives you topics and things like that. Um, but I guess my question is, is there a real remedy? Is there something that Democrats can and will actually do to stop Kavanaugh's appointment? Because from where I'm sitting, I don't really see one. There's there's more that can be done besides just stopping him. On the stopping him question, he is the most unpopular nominee since Robert Bork, which, uh, you know, to remind folks who are either not old enough or aren't obsessed with history as I am, uh, Robert Bork uh, was never on the Supreme Court because we pushed that nomination back. So I think it's still possible um, with uh, the... Well, the timeline that they're trying to push through, uh, Kavanaugh through, there's lots of opportunities that they could not meet that timeline. And since it is an election year, uh, and the Mitch McConnell rule says you can't, uh, you know, uh, nominate and uh, confirm uh, Supreme Court candidates during election years, I think we should follow the Mitch McConnell rule on that. But e- even even if we're not, because Mitch McConnell is a hypocrite, um, we. It won't. If, if anything holds Kavanaugh up. Like, it, they're going to run up against the timeline that they want to be campaigning, like, very quickly. And so I think on that front, um, there, there's there's a slight ability that we'd be able to push Kavanaugh back. And now how that happens is the fact that uh, we continue on the exact same front arguing that I was arguing for earlier, earlier, which is the corruption question, which is we don't know why Trump picked Kavanaugh. And part of the reason we don't know is because we have not had a chance, and that goes for Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, and also as a country, had a chance to review all of his papers from the time that he was in government. And the you know offices responsible for getting all the paperwork together and releasing it, or, you know, they're saying they're doing it as fast as they can, which I'm sure they are. It's hard to you know collate all those files. However, uh, that doesn't mean we have to go through with the timeline that Mitch McConnell picked for confirming him. And if they don't have all that paperwork done, then every Democrat should say, I'm not going to vote for Brett Kavanaugh because I can't fully vet him because I have not seen all of his papers. And until I do, regardless of if I think he's qualified or not, I'm not going to vote for him. The alternative is too, if you, if you accept the fact that Kavanaugh will not 
be able to be stopped, which I don't think is true. I think there's a better chance to stop Kavanaugh than Gorsuch uh, since his, um, I think, despite what happened with Merrick Garland, Kavanaugh has become more controversial than that appointment. Um, Every single Democrat in committee should ask him the question, if if the Supreme Court faces an issue relating to Donald Trump, will you abstain from voting on it? And if his answer is not yes, then say, I am not satisfied with that answer and you will not have my vote. It's not that hard. And I think that's important that we set that up because it is quite likely that even if Donald Trump gets big in 2020, that sometime before or after the Supreme Court will face a question about the things that Donald Trump has done, either in his private life or his public life as president. And we need some sort of assurances from Kavanaugh that he's not just going to be a rubber stamp for uh, Trump and let him get away with whatever uh, he needs to be held accountable for. And I think that is the strategy where you hit the uh, issues with lack of disclosure, the corru- you followed up with corruption, and then end it with he needs to abstain from any of these questions that threaten Trump's presidency. Yeah, I think at the core of this problem for Democrats is that the most direct thing that they can do in terms of trying to enforce the Article One powers of being a check on the president may not be the most popular political route for them. And so it's a tough strategic question, I think, about how you balance those two interests when winning, beating the Republicans and pushing them out of office is probably the at least the most immediate and most important goal for Democrats as this moves forward. Um, But with that, let's move on to our final topic of the week. Um, So for our last topic, we just wanted to recap what happened at the state Democratic Convention in Atlanta this weekend. And Luke, I know you were there for this. So can you kind of just give us the rundown of of what you saw at this gathering of Democrats in Atlanta? Yeah, uh, I was also at the 2014 Democratic State Convention, and I just want to mention that because of the contrast that I saw. So being so being at both, it was really different. The Democratic State Convention in 2014 was in Dublin, Georgia. It had a great turnout. Really, you know, everyone was very excited. Um, but compared to this convention, it just came and light a candle to it because everyone there was super fired up. Uh, there was just way more people. Part of that obviously is accounted for the fact that it's uh, it was in Atlanta, but still, like way more for even beyond that. Um, everyone there was excited. There was a lot more candidates there as well, and uh, I think the energy was very, very sincere as well. Because you know, there's always an element to like if you go to a, par- a state party convention. Like I've never been to one, but I imagine if you go to a Republican state party convention, they're like in, in California, they're gonna be like, and we're gonna c- turn California red this year. Like every year, like, that's that's what they say, <laughs> you know. But it's not actually going to happen. Whereas this year might be the when- year, Californians. Yeah, yeah, maybe this is the year. Maybe every, you know, like, Georgia goes blue, California goes red, and we're all confused. But anyway, like, the point is, is, like, when people said we're going to tor- turn Georgia blue at this convention, like, I believed that they believed it. Whereas it, it, there's a bit more of a stretch in 2014 when, when you heard folks say that. And so I think that's, like, the most important tone change that uh, I saw, and I feel like everyone was really excited 
the other thing I would say is in, in big contrast to 2014 is that Every time one of our statewide candidates stood up and spoke, like I felt excited and thought, like this is a really good person for this job, and I'm super excited to support them, and I feel like I have a really strong case to advocate for this person. And I don't think that was the case in 2014. Uh, while all of the candidates, um, you know, were were good Democrats that had good policy beliefs, uh, the difference between the quality of the campaigns they were running and the quality of like government experience or managerial experience that those candidates have, um, you know, just not really a great comparison to what we're seeing uh, this time where everyone is pretty solid. And I feel really excited to support. I'm so jealous that you got to go. I was busy and I could not make it. Um, can I ask you a question about it? Yeah. So you know, one of my big shticks is about how I really am worried about the Democratic Party truly being diverse and inclusive and representing um, its diverse members um, of the party and, and constituents. How did you – what was your perception of the diversity and inclusion that was going on at the conference while you were there? Were you excited, disappointed? It, on that, it definitely felt better um, because in 2014, we did have uh, a decent amount of women on our slate. You know, we had Michelle Nunn running and Connie Stokes was our lieutenant governor candidate who was an African-American female. So on that front, uh, you know, it wasn't completely absent in 2014. However, in uh, this year, it definitely was far more present in that our we're led by an African-American female at the top of our ticket. We have a female running for lieutenant governor. There's a total of three African-Americans running, uh, I believe. Oh, the Thorgan and uh, Janice Laws uh, are the other two besides Stacey Abrams. Uh, far more women are running. Both of our PSC candidates are women. Uh, you know, there's still the old foggy white guys. They're still there, but uh, we have a, a far more diverse uh uh, ticket and slate i i'm very excited to see that and uh it was nice because one thing that i i will always give uh credit to jason carter for is like one of the big things that he um advocated while he was running is that you know the government of georgia should look like georgia and being a multicultural multiracial coalition and i feel like that aspiration that he had has actually been achieved this year um, and I, I'm very excited to see that because that was a big thing that he pushed. And I think this year we could actually accomplish, uh, getting, and not, not even just with our statewide candidates, with our state Senate and state house candidates as well. If we can elect these Democrats to the state, uh, you know, government, we can actually have a government in Georgia that looks a lot more like the people of Georgia. And, um, while I am a white man and eventually I hope to be an old white man, uh, I would, I would like to see, uh, my state a little bit better represented so we can, um, you know, represent everyone and not just old white people. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good thing. Um, another thing I noticed in the reporting was that Donald Trump was fairly conspicuously absent in most of the speeches that were given or in pretty much all the speeches that were given at that convention. Do y'all think that that was a good move by these Georgia Democrats to focus on issues at home and not on the president? I personally thought so. And it really, it really hit home for me. Like what, like watching that convention and watching all those speeches. I was really excited because 
in previous years, there has been kind of an element of we have someone who's running who is a Democrat and feels strongly about the Democratic Party, but maybe they aren't as like dived into what Georgia needs as much. And that's always been a big complaint that I've had is that we weren't providing a contrast and an alternative to what the Republicans were doing. Whereas this year, I feel like literally in every race, like this is what I would do that the current can the current incumbent or their candidate is not doing. And so this is the change that I would bring to this position. This is the alternative that I would provide. And that was something I've, I think has been missing and hasn't been in as stark of uh, detail uh, before. And I, I'm excited to see that. And I'm really hoping that um, that will help us have a better result this cycle because they're focusing on the stuff that matters uh, in, in Georgia. And I think we sort of mentioned this earlier, like, I don't know if Donald Trump came up. I don't recall him coming up, but maybe he did. And I just missed it. But like, it definitely wasn't one of those things where I just kept saying like, oh my God, they won't stop talking about Trump. He was largely absent from the proceedings. And I, I think that was a good thing. Um, Brian Kemp was largely absent from Stacey Abrams speech too, right? Like I know I, I watched part of her speech and I saw she got a couple of digs in about the proper way to hold your gun, not pointing it at uh, the suitor of your daughter and uh, the struggles for, for Kemp and the secretary of state's office. But this really, from what I saw was a speech about her celebrating the rest of the ticket, calling out each of the nominees and in the ways in which they would uh, act. If you, if you put a full slate of democratic statewide candidates into office um, and, and, and the other thing I thought was interesting was her biggest applause line, at least from what I could hear on the video was the, uh, her pledge to eliminate the student scholarship organization, private school tax credits, and, uh, put that money back into public education. She's got a line you'll, you'll hear often through the end of the year that she does not want to be Georgia's education governor. She wants to be Georgia's public education governor. Important distinction for her there. Um, yeah. What did you think of how she addressed Kemp and how she looks towards the fall? Well, just as a general note, um, I feel like that was one of the the weaker Stacey Abrams speeches I've seen since she is really great at giving speeches and they're always very filled with policy, which I like. And I think that's just because she had to do exactly as you said, kind of like make callbacks to everything else that had been said that night and uh, sort of uh, promote the whole slate, which is good. I'm happy that she did that because uh, it definitely did make it feel like that this is a team effort and that all those fo folks are running together rather than uh, running their own races. And I think that's really important because that's been a problem in Georgia before. As far as how she's addressed Kemp, I think I think it's good because, again, she's providing a contrast. She makes it clear on policy where she uh, is differentiating herself. And one thing I was really happy to see from all the candidates is like, they were very focused on the economy and jobs and the things that Republicans in this state uh, tend to pretend that Democrats know nothing about and can't speak on. So I think that was a really strong choice and has, from what I've seen, been the focus of uh, much of her campaign. And so on that front, I don't think she needs 
to talk about Brian Kemp all that much. Uh, and I think her focusing on what she would do differently is, is really important. And, and I'm happy too, that she took a, a strong stance on the student scholarship organization uh, issue, because that is, that is one that has been uh, something I think fly, flies under the radar for many Georgians who uh, aren't take, trying to take advantage of it. And it is something that is draining our, our public school system uh, quite significantly, and there's there's plenty of other issues uh, like that one that she brought up that I was really happy to see. And I think that specificity is really important um, from her. And the other thing that I really love about this campaign that is in comparison to 2014 is that it would be very difficult to make the same argument that you and I have <laughs> made in, uh, complaining about Jason Carter's campaign where every issue was about education and that if you asked him a question about agriculture, it would eventually would get back to education. If you asked him about healthcare or jobs or anything else, eventually somehow education would come in. And that's not happening in this race. Uh, if there was one common thing that always came back, it would be jobs in the economy. So I don't know if she's hired James Carville or like he's just like whispering her sweet nothings or something, but like he's he's in her head <laughs> somehow because all they talk about is the economy, and I think that's really important. Any closing thoughts on the Democratic convention? The other thing I was really excited about with this convention is that the audience was also far more diverse and uh, far younger than the 2014 democratic convention so i was just happy to see that uh there was a lot more young people serving as delegates to the convention and participating in the uh, caucuses the young democrats had a really well attended caucus and we talked through uh our plans for this campaign season and some of the issues we've uh, been facing as chapters and as a statewide organization so i'm just uh happy to just see see the sea change and that even if we don't win this year, and I think there's a great chance that we could, it's quite clear that we're currently building the future of the Democratic Party in Georgia and that a lot of progress still needs to be made, but we're actually making progress now, whereas uh, before I think it was a lot slower. Now it's a lot clearer that we're taking really, uh, really great steps towards turning Georgia into the state we all know it can be. Well, it's a lot of those young people are, who are going to have to knock on the doors and make the calls and find 200,000 more votes for Stacey Abrams and Democratic candidates up and down the ballot. Um, so they certainly have their work cut out for them, but it, it sounds like it was a good gathering of Democrats in Atlanta. Uh, but with that, I think we're going to leave that there for the week. Um, so Megan, thanks again for, for joining us. Thank you. I always learn something and it's such a great time. So thanks for hanging out. And Luke, uh, thanks as always. Thanks for being our man on the ground at the Democratic Convention. Yeah, no problem. And with that, we'll leave it there and we'll talk to y'all next week. See ya. See ya. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.